Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Matthew. It's so good to be with you this morning. Welcome to church. It's good to be together. Um, if you live in DeKalb County and you are not in the city of Atlanta, then you got to do what a number of us got to do or should have done, but we didn't know to do, which is boil a bunch of water yesterday and drink hot water. Uh, but because of a couple of incredible people, one person in particular who's in the sound booth right now, we have coffee this morning brought in from the city of Atlanta. Imported coffee. Isn't it amazing? Um, it's, people were up very, very early to make sure that we had 15 gallons of coffee for y'all to make it through church. And um, just so grateful for Becca and for the people who made that happen. So um, we're going to be in the book of Luke today. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to Luke 15, go ahead and do so. Luke 15. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of this chapter and then we'll pray and then... Um, and then we'll see what the Lord has, may have for us today. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Spirit, we thank you that you are that you are moving invisibly in this space. And so, Lord, we just sit ourselves in these chairs, we put ourselves in this space, and ask that you would do what you do. Open our hearts. Allow us to hear you. Move us outside of ourselves. God, we pray for um, an awareness and alertness to what you're saying to us today and that it would touch the deep places and the deep questions and the deep hurts inside all of us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've been doing this study of the church for like the whole summer. And every month, basically, we've taken a different thing and focused our attention on it. And this month, what we focus our attention on is what we're calling the treasure of the church, meaning what is it that the church values? What is it that the church finds to be um, the treasure, the, 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 the priceless thing that we are pursuing, that we, that we decide what is it that God's heart says, this is the most valuable, and then how do we align ourselves with that? Because to be a Christian is to essentially uh, to allow God to reorient you around a new economy, 
part of becoming a Christian is beginning to recognize that the things that the world or that you and I think are valuable are maybe not the same things that God says are valuable. And so to be a Christian and to be a follower of Jesus is to be a person who's increasingly letting God realign me around that different economy, that different value system. And so last week we began with this really fundamental uh, base layer, which is that the most essential, valuable thing that Jesus says any of us can have in this life is what he called the kingdom of God. Another place in John's gospel, he calls this eternal life. And eternal life is not the thing that you get when you die. The kingdom of God is not a place that you go when you stop breathing. It is a present day reality now. It's my life with God today. Eternal life is the same thing. Eternal life is not heaven. It's not wings and stuff. It's a chance for you, Jesus says, it is knowing you the one and only God. It's an experience of relationship and power and presence with God. This is what Jesus says is worth selling everything we have and giving everything away to obtain, to be with the Lord, to be near to him. So what that's going to mean, though, that's kind of abstract a little bit, right? Over the next couple of weeks, I hope that we can put a bit more concrete around that. And today we're going to talk about the people that really matter to God. Who are the people that God treasures? And it's going to be sort of counter uh, to the narrative that was true in the time of Jesus and counter to the narrative that's true in our own day and age. Because what Jesus is essentially going to say is that the thing that we all assume is what makes a person valuable. I know we don't actually assume this, but we, act, we live like we do. That the thing that makes you good or right or okay is how presentable you are, how together you appear, how much your externals seem to communicate a message that's impressive. That's, that's exactly what's going on in this story. I know none of us actually believe that. We all know like the real value of a person is in the heart. And then we all spend most of our life trying to maintain externals, you know, and trying to constantly put forward a curated image of our life. That's what's on your social media. Like that's what you're like, this is what I want people to think is true about me. And Jesus has a message where he's like, God actually sees something far deeper. In fact, the way he says it in Matthew 5 is he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And, and so what he says is the most scrupulous, put-together people you've ever met, the people who seem to have every box checked, he's like, unless your goodness, your rightness exceeds and goes beyond and deeper than those people, you'll never get to experience God's life, which is another way of saying that as long as my life with God is only a skin-deep reality, as long as my experience of God is only something that is visible externally, but it hasn't sunk into my heart yet, I will never experience what God actually has uh, for me. So Jesus wants, I think, today to kind of give us a sense of who are the people God's pursuing um, so that we can find ourselves in that story. So first thing I want to say today from this story is this, that there were around Jesus irreligious people. Jesus attracted irreligious people. The scene is said at the beginning, it says, now tax collectors and sinners are coming near to him. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to grumble, it says, because it says that they weren't just coming near him. This fellow welcomes them and then he eats with them. So who are tax collectors and sinners? Um, tax collectors, if you, um, you may know this, but if you don't, here's a review. Tax collectors were Jewish, were Jews who had decided to sort of sell their country out to work for Rome and to be, in a sense, Rome's muscle, to go in and exploit and fleece their countrymen, all in the name of this oppressive, haunting, occupying force. 
So to be a tax collector was not simply like, your job is to, is to make people pay their taxes. And we're all like, we hate paying taxes. That's not what a tax collector was. A tax collector was a person who literally used the fear of Rome as a weapon against his own people to get them to give money they didn't have to, to fill the purses of a, ma- of a major empire that was just extending and oppressing more people. So you were a traitor. You were an enemy. You were hated. And you were outside of civic life. You were pushed outside of social community life. You were certainly pushed outside of religious life. You were not welcome to the temple. And these are the people hanging out with Jesus, tax collectors and sinners. And in Luke's language, sinner is not just a blanket word for all people because we could all say, well, all have sinned. We're all sinners. In Luke, he's thinking of a very specific sort of thing. He's thinking of obviously external, obviously uh, immoral, sort of egregious, scandalous sorts of sins. People who were engaged in activities that everyone could see and everyone could look down their nose at. In fact, in Luke 7, for example, there's a story about a woman who comes in and Jesus is reclining at table. And the way it worked is that they would sort of lean forward on their elbow and eat like this at the table and their feet would be behind them, you know, because they didn't have chairs or they didn't usually use them. And so anyway, this woman comes in and she stands behind Jesus as he's leaning at the table and she begins to cry and soak his feet with her tears. It's an incredible story. And then she gets down and she begins to wash his feet with her tears. And Jesus is eating dinner at this time with a Pharisee. And the Pharisee thinks to himself, if he knew what kind of woman this was, what kind of work she does, he would never let her touch her, touch him because she was a sex worker. Her job was to you know, sell her body. That was how she paid the bills. In other words, and she, the, the Pharisee says, this is a sinful woman. This woman is a sinner. So when Luke says sinners were being drawn to Jesus, he's not thinking of just prostitutes, but he's thinking of prostitutes and then people like prostitutes, people who are obviously you know, dealing with very dark and scandalous sort of lines of work or whatever. And these are the people that are hanging out with Jesus, that are having dinner with him, that he's opening his table up to. And this is very scandalous to the Pharisees. It's obviously uh, bothering them. And so it frustrates the religious people. That's the second point we see. They begin to grumble. Grumbling is actually the context for this whole thing. Jesus is having a perfectly nice meal with tax collectors and sinners. And they're talking about the seedy things they do. And then these people look in on this and they say, this is irresponsible of him. He's a religious teacher. He knows better than this. He himself is a scrupulous law keeper. Why would he ever allow himself to be stained, tainted by this sort of company. To eat with a person in the ancient world, I mean, even more so than today, was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of friendship. It was a picture of, like, I receive you. Like, we're, we're, we're comrades around a meal. It wasn't hierarchical. Now, I think it's easy for us, especially today, especially in our context, East Atlanta, to kind of stand on the outside of the story and to look at, you know, these poor marginalized people, these poor tax collectors, these poor, these poor prostitutes, and, and to see Jesus eating with them and to be like, yeah, you go, Jesus. And then he tells this story. We're like, yeah, that's right. You punch those religious people in the mouth, Jesus. They don't know what they're doing. And we sort of, we sort of align ourselves against the grumbling mass. We sort of think, well, we're, not, we're clearly not Pharisees in this. We're for the oppressed people. We're for marginalized people. I don't have to convince you of that. We're for, we're for people who are on the underside of society, people who are the outcasts. Those are the ones that we're for, and they're the ones Jesus was for. But let me remind you of something. Jesus did eat with sinners and tax collectors. He also ate dinner and called as part of his disciples. 
racists and nationalists and Zionists. He also called bureaucrats and hardworking professionals and no-name zealots. He called all these people into his tribe. In other words, every person looks on the outside of Jesus' circle and grumbles if they're thinking clearly. Everyone. We all find ourselves looking at a group of people and go, how how are you okay with that person hanging out with you? In fact, racism was so deep in the, in the culture of, of the Jewish people that Jesus had around him that in the book of Galatians, which is a letter Paul wrote, we read about how Paul is still trying to unroot this deep embedded racism in the heart of Peter. Peter, you know, like the main guy, he struggles with racism the rest of his life, which is just to say, it's very easy for us with our sensibilities here in Decatur, to think that we're on the side here of the marginalized people, and therefore Jesus invites all people to come and eat with him. Everyone is scandalized by the people Jesus associates with. Left, right, rich, poor, mainstream, marginalized. Everyone is scandalized by it because Jesus wants you to know that everyone is welcome. Fundamentalism is just the religious instinct that is at work in all of us who is deciding who is in and who is out based on a set of criteria that I choose, which usually aligns with what I think is right and wrong. That's what fundamentalism is. And the same exact instinct that was at play in the moral majority in the 80s that were saying certain people couldn't possibly be Christians because of their abortion ethic is now at play today in people on the left who say these people can't possibly be Christians because of their politics. It's the same instinct. It's deciding it's not okay for these people to be around Jesus. They don't really get him the way I get him. And it's fundamentalism. Jesus opens his arms wide open and says, everyone is welcome. Everyone comes to the table. Everyone can be with me. No one is excluded. And that puts all of us in the position of Pharisees in this. All of us find ourselves grumbling and muttering to ourselves around things like this. And if you can't find yourself, there is a grumble at work in you. There's a grumble at work in you and me. It's at work in me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's me and a handful of you, and the rest of you are good. But I, I, my sense is that most of us actually have alive in us a muttering spirit that looks down our noses at people. And Jesus looks at you and me, and he tells these stories. He, looks at, he speaks to that. He speaks to the Pharisee in us. He speaks to the fundamentalist in us. He speaks to the mutterer in us, and he tells these stories. He wants you to know what God's heart is like. He wants to invite you into that reality, into that kingdom. And so this is the story or the stories he tells. He tells two stories. They're meant to be very similar. And they tell us simply that God pursues all people regardless of the risk. Jesus is saying, essentially, I want you to understand how big my father's heart is. I want you to understand that it's not narrow. It's not this little tiny gate that you have to figure out your way through. It is a wide open heart that my father has. He is willing to pursue people at all costs. He doesn't even appear to be tremendously calculating in his pursuit. I mean, what kind of person leaves 99 sheep in the wilderness to go look for one? That's not a very calculating move, if you ask me. This seems almost reckless. Why would you do that? Why would you risk 99 to go get the one? But Jesus is not trying to get us to think about whether or not this person has good shepherding instincts. He's trying to paint a picture for you and me about how great God's love is, that he's willing to take risks in order to search for those who have strayed away. And I just think if the shepherd came back with the sheep on his shoulder and they're singing, 
You know, they're so happy. And he gets back and he's like, counts. He's like, oh no, someone else left. He would do the exact same thing again. Because the point isn't that this was his favorite sheep. The point is that that's what God's heart is like. He doesn't give up. He continues to chase. He continues to pursue. He tears the house upside down. He lights the lamps. He is eager to find the things that he has lost. And the things that he cares about the most are people. He is eager to find these things at any cost. Now, I also want to say, and this may only apply to a handful of you in here, but the idea of God chasing us down can be uncomfortable for some of us. In fact, we just sang the song. I asked Sarah if we could sing this song this week. I love this song, but he chases me down is a lyric that is deeply comforting to me, but there probably have been times in my life where it hasn't felt comforting, and maybe for you it doesn't feel comforting because the idea of being chased is not what you want. Actually, being left alone would be better. Or maybe even your story has parts of it, chapters of it, where being chased was actually really a, a dangerous thing. It was not a welcome thing. And also, I want to honor that. Like, that's a real thing. Sometimes, sometimes the idea that God kicks walls down, it's not a very comforting thought. There's this old sort of image in the church. You may have heard of the, uh, sometimes Christ is referred to as the hound of heaven. Anyone ever heard of that? You had to be in a certain kind of church to know that language. So anyway, the hound of heaven, the, the idea of the hound of heaven is that Jesus is on the hunt. He's on the hunt for souls. He's going after you. He's going to find you and he's going to grab you by the ankle. He's going to pull you into the kingdom, <laughs> whether you want to or not. The hound is after you. Now this is, you know, in certain circles, is looked at as a deeply comforting, peace-giving releasing reality, that this is what our God is like. And yet I just want to acknowledge that that's not always how we experience that. In fact, I was talking to a woman after the last service, and she was talking about, sometimes I do feel like, I, got, I don't like the way you're coming after me right now. I wish that you would leave me alone a little bit, or at least change your tactic. Jesus, I don't think, is meaning to scare us. He's not meaning to, to stir up in us anxiety that we always need to be looking over our shoulder. Here comes the hound. He just, he just simply wants to communicate the relentlessness of God's love for you. And that that's going to take very many different shapes in your life. And in fact, what I would say, my experience of God's relentless pursuit of me is that oftentimes what it feels like is not like a hound nipping my heel and pulling me away. Uh, it feels instead like turning a corner and suddenly seeing a way forward. That God's pursuit of me has felt more like him bringing me to a place where I can see what the next step is or I can find my way back home. And that's actually what it feels like to, for God to not give up on me. I just want to say to you that there are people in, that are represented in this room who are not in this room and that there's a lot of anxiousness and fear around those people. There are people that we all care about. I know it's true. And you wish they were in a room like this. They're not in a room like this this morning. God is never giving up on those people. You know, we give up on people. We let people go. God never gives up on a person. He never gives up on you. He never stops looking. He never stops pursuing. And that, that can feel scary in some way. And, and if it is, I would just encourage you to say that to God. He can handle it. He's not going to have his feelings wounded easily. Um, he never lets go. He never gives up. He never stops looking. He never stops turning over things to find you. And that is what Jesus is trying to tell you and me, that, that every single person is worth pursuing to the end of the earth. Every single person, no matter what they think or what they look like or what they believe, every single person is worth pursuing to the end of the earth. Which leads to the fourth movement in our passage, which is that, in Jesus' words, there is then more joy. There is more joy before the angels in heaven. 
This is a little bit theological, but just run with, go with me for a second. It's, it's going to go somewhere good. Jesus says something incredible. He says that when the coin is found, when the sheep is found, that the person celebrates. They celebrate by bringing other people into their happiness, into their joy. Now, in, in the book of Matthew, which is another one of the Gospels about Jesus' life, at, towards the end of the book, in, in chapter 25, um, there's a bunch of stories Jesus tells about the end, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, the, the end of all things, you know, the things they make movies about. And he says that in the end, we're all going to stand before the Lord, and some people are going to hear Jesus say, maybe this will be familiar. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You may have heard that before, maybe not. He says that some people will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and then they'll hear him say, enter into the joy of your master. And I always thought, what in the world does that mean? That doesn't make any sense. But the more I've gotten to know God, the more that makes a lot of sense. What that means is that heaven is God bringing you fully immersed into his already existent happiness. That that's actually what heaven's going to be. Drinking from a spring that never runs dry, that has always been. The happiness at the center of all things is, 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 is the happiness in the Trinity, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that when a person is found, when a person repents, that there is more joy before the angels. And I really do think that the image that's meant to be evoked in this is this sense that God in that moment dances in front of the angels. And if you could just imagine that maybe that happened when he found you and he invited all of the heavenly creatures in that moment into his party because he was so happy to have you. Now, it's interesting because these two stories about people being found, and then he, Jesus says at the end both times, um, I tell you there's more joy when a person repents. And you say, well, what is it? Is it a person choosing to repent and come to Jesus? Or is it Jesus finding a person? And it's like, welcome to the Bible. This is how it works. It is both. You know, like while the shepherd is carrying you home on your shoulders and singing about how happy he is that he has you, that little sheep is going like, I'm deciding to go home right now. And that's actually kind of how it works. Like, that's just what the Christian life is like. You know, look at how brave I am, walking back to the house on this person's shoulders. But that, that is actually what the Christian life is like. In other words, when God finds a person, and when a person chooses to come forward, chooses to receive, chooses to open, there is deep and abundant joy. There's a celebration and a party that is sparked, that lights up the whole heavens, that echoes on to creation forever endeavor. Um, so my six-year-old Rowan, he's almost seven, uh, he uh, was in our bed the other night because it was just a normal night and that's what he does. And so he came in our bed in the middle of the night and um, uh, he began, he was started to have dreams about his little brother Asher. Asher is four, almost five, and Rowan and Asher are best friends. They're Calvin and Hobbes, but one of them is, they're both real. Calvin and Hobbes, and they are best friends Anyway, so Rowan is having dreams in his sleep about playing what he's going to do with Asher tomorrow. And he starts talking in his sleep, and Rebecca and I are just listening to this. And he, every, time he call, every time he talks about Asher, he says, my Asher. You know, come on, my Asher. So he's having this dream, and he's talking about what he's going to do with his Asher the next day. Um, and I was, I was laying there, and it just hit me as I was, you know, in that sort of weird in-between sleep place, like... Um, He's my Rowan. Like that sort of possessive language is actually, um, 
It's not possessive in the sense of ownership. It's possessive in the sense of deep fondness and affection. You know the way God describes you, right? Uh, All throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, whenever he wants to describe the relationship he has with you, he says, and they will be my people and I will be their God. He wants you to understand that actually the truest thing about you is that he claims you and he says, you're mine. And what, what happiness could be available to you and me? What freedom and lightness of being might be available? What, what deep sense of rootedness and, and ability to then love people and not be grumbling and not be constantly positioning myself against other people because I don't need to do that anymore. If I could just begin to believe that even on my worst day, God looks at me and says, my Matthew, that deep fondness and connection that when he found you, he wasn't like, you weren't the one sheep he spanked the whole way home. He took you and put you on his shoulders and sang the whole way home and invited everyone to come into the joy because that's how he feels about you. That's actually what he wants you to know is true, even on your worst day, even when you're not, even when you're the sheep who wandered off, that put the rest of the flock at risk, even when you're the one who was reckless and irresponsible. And look where you found, you're down here again, you always wander off to the same place. No, it's not what he does. He picks you up, puts you on his shoulder, and he sings the whole way home. And I just, what, what would be available to you and me, I think? in our relationship to God, our experience of his love, our sense of safety, our power in prayer, and our willingness to say the real thing that we want, if we could believe that God, when he says your name, the word he puts in front of it is my. But that's how I feel about you. My Chris, my Patrick, my Audrey, my Kale, my Paula. Mine, you're mine. The deep love that God has for us that isn't based on anything you've done before you were anything, when you and I were sheep in a ditch that we walked ourselves into, even then, pursued, wanted, desired, walls knocked down, chased relentlessly, eager to have you, just so that he could have you. Why don't we stand up together? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity Indicator. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.